everyone, and thanks for listening in. Welcome to Leading Well, where we get to know leaders and how they make it happen. My name is Tim Davis. And I'm Alyssa. Yeah, and so let's welcome our guest today. Satya Chandragiri. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you're a good friend to our organization and to our community. And, you know, so obviously people pick up an accent. Uh, what were, Where were you born? Where What was childhood like type of thing? Well, thank you for uh, inviting me to this show. This is wonderful. Uh, I was born in India, South India. So, and my wife is from Northeast India. So between cool. uh, me and my wife, we speak about uh, nine languages and uh, we wow. don't have a language in common. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so yeah. we just uh, speak English or Hindi as because most family members can understand that. I think even a lot of married couples would say they're not speaking the same language sometimes. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> what I, uh, you know, it's, it's culturally diverse because my wife is from a Northeast Indian tribe. They don't have a root language which is connected to the rest of India's root language. Mm-hmm. They're indigenous people. Okay. And each tribe has its own uh, lifestyle and way of living and worship. So what I worship, they'll be slaughtering for the same occasion. So we learn to live <laughs> together and love each other for 30 years, and we are blessed with two kids. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, you know, we left, you know, growing up in India was difficult. My father served in Air Force. You know, when I was about 12 years old, my mother went missing almost a year. This was before the days of cell phone and mm-hmm. internet, etc. And so I kind of learned to grow up and cook and take care of my little sister and my older brother. And You know, they don't cut a slack when you're in Air Force that your wife goes missing, right? So dad stayed with us. He didn't and raised us and, and parents. In the hindsight, when I look back, she had schizophrenia, a mm. serious form of mental illness. So, so my early years were, essentially she became my first teacher. I'm a psychiatrist, for those of you who are hearing. Yeah. She became my first teacher. I learned it's schizophrenia does not affect the person alone. The whole family suffers with it. Mm. Relationships are gone. And the most beautiful part was when I became a psychiatrist in India, I went back and found my mother, and I realized that that's what she was going through because nobody had made a diagnosis. So I brought her home. We tra- took care of her. We treated her. And we found our family back again. We found our mother mm. back again. Wow. And so that is the most important blessing of schizophrenia that I received. Mm. Because sometimes suffering also can be a wonderful teaching moment. It's a teacher. Yeah. And God had his own plans to launch me. And now I practice psychiatry in three countries in the last 35 years. And me and my wife, we left India in 94 with our daughter, who was very little, three months old, to an island called St. Lucia. It's in the Caribbean island. I was the mm-hmm. only, I was a psychiatrist for half the island. 60,000 was my wow. population. I took care of that island for the first time. The North, they had a thing. I started a psychiatric program. I was on call 365 days. In 1996, a Dr. Fryer, who used to visit the island from Temple University, he said, you should come to U.S., so that's how I came to Temple University, Philadelphia, and uh, started my residency all over again. My son was born in Philadelphia. Mm. So when we landed in this country, we just came with bare minimum, two suitcases, one wife, one kid. <laughs> I keep saying, even our son doesn't, it's not ours, he's a gift for us from U.S. <laughs> <laughs> the good Lord, God's grace, and so many people who held our hands and literally walked us through. And today we are here. 
We are blessed. In 2010, we became naturalized citizens. Wow. Oh, that's and, nice cool. uh, you know, so we I had to work in an underserved area as part of my visa waiver. So I worked in Pendleton, Oregon in 2000. Okay. So 23 years ago, I landed in o Oregon, in yeah. Pendleton, Oregon. I was serving Eastern Oregon. And today, I'm so blessed that I got I get to serve all the 12 Eastern Oregon counties as chief medical officer of an Eastern Oregon CCO's Gobi. Greater. So we've got 70,000 people under our care. And then my practice extends all the way to Sutherland in Douglas County, okay. Lane County, Salem. So... I really think, and I have served the veterans. I served, it's a state hospital, I ran a state hospital. And I think we have got far more, we got so much more than we ever, ever imagined when we landed in this mm. We are full, filled with gratitude even on the worst day. And I truly want to let the listeners know we can never repay in many lifetimes mm. for what we have been blessed with, what we have got. It's not just that I get to serve people. The group homes and the work we do has created so many jobs. Mm -hmm. We have like 160 people in long-term care in uh, Sutherland. It's a small town for those of you who know. Sure. In Lane County, Eugene and Springfield and Thurston. And now so many people are working. And I got to see the best of them. Right. When the COVID affected a lot of our residents in the long-term care, some of these young staff members, they're barely out of high school, 20s. They were serving them, holding their hand, and literally till the last moment. Mm. I saw the best of the compassion in this staff. And some of the staff members themselves came down with COVID positive. So they would sleep upstairs and take care of those who were downstairs, so mm. elderly, those with brain injury, those with dementia. To me, to witness that kind of human compassion and care in this young uh, Oregonians who are working there. And that is the biggest blessing. Mm. This is That's good. You know, so the life has, it's for us, you know, opportunities came. It's not just an opportunity, but an opportunity for me to become a better person. Sure. And learn from everybody. Those, some of them, you know, COVID took their life. I put more people on hospice uh, uh, in the last two, three years since everything was shut down and people are not visiting them, etc. In that moment, sure. to care for the end of life itself was uh, uh, an opportunity and a gift from God for us. That's how I saw it as my calling. Right. And when I go back to my childhood, if my mother didn't have schizophrenia, it won't have brought that ability to understand the human suffering at such an intimate level mm. yeah. and develop compassion. So that's, that's how good. I look back. And sure. And your kids are your kids are how old now? My kids. Uh, my daughter is. Uh, she was born in '94. Okay. You know, she went to my kids went through the high school here, and then my daughter went and did a graduate study in international sustainable development from Heller School. Before that, she did Peace Corps in Armenia and. She worked in Shanghai teaching English to kids. Mm. And now she's working for Catholic Relief Services, serving refugees in Uganda. Okay. And my son, who was born in 98, he went to South Salem and then eventually graduated from Carnegie Mellon, did behavioral economics. He works for KPMG, a company in Manhattan. Okay. So 
I really think we have been blessed. Mm. And the you know any amount of service I do public service I do as a psychiatrist or um, school board director is not enough for what I can repay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like so I was going to say, you know, a lot of your life is surrounded, um, has been surrounded kind of around this psychiatry aspect of your life. And then people in our area likely know you more as your position on the school board. And you've been on that since like 2019, right? That's right. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. And uh, he's uh, been uh, naive enough to run again. And so There you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, people <laughs> ask me, what were you thinking when you decided to put your name in the hat? I want our, everybody to hear this very clearly. I'm first of all a parent, a simple immigrant parent. I'm a physician. I served people for 35 years. I served in three countries, pretty much every kind of community, every kind of trauma uh, they have gone through, whether they escaped from Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or the veterans uh, who have gone through horrific life or children and families. I've seen a lot as a physician as a parent you don't abandon your children mm. as a physician you don't abandon those who are suffering so when the answer became very clear a very simple answer and you know i bring with me some level of experience some stability some continuity and i'm not going to abandon anybody simple right. as that <laughs> yeah the answer is very very simple sure. our community has gone through the perfect storm i don't have to sit here and repeat that no. we all went through everybody mm. nobody was spared yeah and this is the time we really need to pick up the pieces and put the system back together literally it's almost like a tornado wiped through the community mm. right so you start with some basics yep you start bringing the families together because every family loves their child more than anybody can love let's no school no institution can love their child more than the parent true every parent is the first teacher every parent is scared you know there are only two things those are basic paternal or maternal instincts when your baby is unsay something happens to their safety and we all want our babies to do better than what we did simple as that mm mm-hmm. right and today for the first time people are scared of the safety of their child number 2 first time americans are asking are our children going to do better than what we did first time this is not my di- statement right. this is from the national polls and gallup and pew research so this is a fair question so all those parents the mama bears basic instinct maternal instinct has been activated mm. now this is the time we need to bring them in so that's why i said let's start with a good family authentic family bringing them in build the trust back number 2 we have to focus on safety if there is safety concerns there is no learning it's not that it's the child who is having difficult time 100% there is no learning hmm. safe unsafe situation is contagious the fear is becomes contagious third thing is we need to put our focus back on nuts and bolts of good quality learning math science reading third grade reading is very very important the first hmm. three years the brain is learning to read afterwards the brain is reading to learn if you miss that mark somebody else will have to read it for you that's the worst thing that happened i've seen it in small villages in india where the community is illiterate not literate they can speak but they're not literate 
So somebody has to read. The postman has to read the love letter to death letter to legal mm. letter. That's not correct. I am. I can sp- speak five languages, but I can only read and write in two languages. So I am literally illiterate in three other languages. Mm. So somebody will have to read it for me. Once somebody else reads it, then my critical thinking fails. I cannot understand the world out there. That's why I really focus on getting us back on that. Everything else, let's put it in a parking lot. Right. Once you can read, once you can speak, one, then you can understand different culture. You can really connect with people at a very important level. Sure. And the statistics you're talking about, you know, from the reading at grade level by third grade and and the other statistics around fatherlessness, which is one of the focuses of our organization, right, that 90% of uh, every incarcerated person is coming from a fatherless home. Well, there's some similar statistics to incarceration versus can read at, you know, at level by third grade. So Absolutely. What you said is absolutely true, Tim. Because there was a statesman journal, a good in-depth article from one of her own former uh, local reporter. She found the same thing. People in incarcerated, they had difficulty reading. Most of them, about 80-90% of them didn't complete the high school. Right. So, you know, education system, social systems, uh, legal system, they're all kind of in- interconnected. And right. as a nation, we need all, all hands on the deck. We need <laughs> all hands on the deck, literally. I want a pipeline of young kids becoming physicians and psychiatrists so I can retire one day. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I don't want people to think I'm doing it for selfish reasons, that I want sure. them to study well. But right. the reality is we need cradle-to-career pipeline for the future, yeah. STEM fields. Cutting-edge field, because that's where the world is moving. Mm-hmm. When kids join kindergarten before the pandemic, you know, kids are going to enter the kind of field where 65% of the jobs, nobody knows how, what it's supposed to look like. So we really have to prepare the kind of skill set which will help them succeed in the world we don't know. Mm. And that got accelerated with pandemic. For example, the digital world became the reality. We cannot cruise along and say, let's do this, let's do that. There is no time to distract ourselves. We are talking about what should have, what we were heading towards the digital world got accelerated and we kind of, it rushed towards us. Mm-hmm. And that's when we realized we were so ill-prepared. Yeah. We didn't even know how many children didn't have computers at home. So when we, I asked this question in a board meeting, out of the 42,000 kids, how many don't have? This is when we decided to shut the schools, right? Right. So somebody re- said 13%. We ended up distributing 32,000 devices to 42,000 kids. Yeah, we I wasn't a, a math major in college, but that's a little higher than 13%. Absolutely. <laughs> and that is more or less the same percentage as children on Title I, which mm-hmm. is like below poverty line. That's right. about 72 to 75%. We were... We had to purchase 10,000 internet hotspots, mm-hmm. the hubs. Yep. And in that time, the supply chain came down crashing. So even when we had money, there was nobody selling it. Mm. Yeah. So again, internet is not only for studying. Internet allowed them to get healthcare yep. during the pandemic, connect with each other. And thing. That having a device alone is not enough. Some 
the parents were calling me and saying, how do you start the Zoom meeting? Right. Literally, those, so you need to, that's also part of inequity we faced in digital inequity. People didn't know how to use the device. Now, that alone is not enough. The rest of the world is ahead of us. They're creating contents. We are still giving de devices back to people. And we yeah. still didn't know how many didn't have. So having a transparent, accurate data is absolutely important. If we cannot measure something, we will never be able to fix that problem. Simple right. as that. Yeah. Transparency is critical in, in actually any business model, any relationship, right? Um, whether that's uh, schools or I'm selling Kleenex to, you know, mentoring is what, we're, you know. And so, yeah, transparency is, is important. Transparency yeah. is important in any human relationship. Yep. Me and my wife are married for 30 years, and we have come from different culture, different language. So we had to make extra effort to not only explain what the cultural differences are, language differences are, be honest with each other. So transparency is as simple as human relationship. Hmm. When marriages fail because of lack of transparency, let's so contracts break in business because of lack of transparency. Sure. And we have 40,000 students and their parents. We need to be honest and transparent for the same reason as it is important for a sacredness of a marriage relationship or a parent-child relationship or in any human relationship. So transparency means having access to information, having access to data, having access to an ability to sit and participate in developing a shared narrative and policy, and having access to saying, what's happening to my child? Are they on track? If a child who drops out or gets into trouble, say in middle school or high school, there are a lot of early warning signs that start very early. And parents come and ask me, nobody told me until my child got expelled or got into trouble. Mm. That's like me as a physician saying, sorry, you have kidney failure today. You have to go for dialysis. Your <laughs> logical question is, doc, you are checking my blood sugar for the last 10 years. Why didn't you tell me? Right. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to wait till I have kidney failure that I need a dialysis? So when you measure data, it's like when I draw blood from you, the blood is yours, not mine. So when you collect a data, the data is your child, not mine. So it is really important, it's very ethical that I have to be honest. I have to tell you what that data means so that you as a parent can use that information to make informed early choices and appropriate choices for your child's sake. If I collect a data and don't share with you, that's not ethical in my mind. That's like me collecting blood from you for my sake, not for your sake. Sure. And so, uh, and if people who are listening, maybe you joined in late, uh, data that he's talking about, 40,000 students and those type of stuff has to do with the Salem-Kaiser School District. But a lot of these things are challenges that other other folks would uh, would experience in, in uh, districts. But I, I think the other thing is you were talking about parents having access to data that I, I absolutely agree. And then the thing that I'd like to say to every parent out there listening is it's your responsibility to reach out and, and, 
inform yourself. The information is there, and if it isn't, you ask for it, right? Because we we live in a very busy culture, right, and a very self-centered uh, environment even as parents and, and other things. Everything's vying for our time, including our kids. And I, I read somewhere that I think 58 seconds a day is what every parent in America spends of uninterrupted time with their child. And that's not an answer for success either. So, yeah. So children, children, you know, the, the way our good Lord has made our brain and the brain doesn't understand all these 58 seconds and things like that. Children need undivided attention. They need parents. They need teachers. They need the community to wrap around them. It's right. all about that. Every action should be about our children. You yeah. Know, just like for a bird, everything the bird does is for the little baby bird. Simple as that. That's what nature is all about. Now, having said that, one of the things I'm discover, I discovered in, as a school board director is a lot of people don't know what they don't know. Yes. They don't know what their rights are. They don't even know what civil rights mean. They don't know how to ask for it. So in the, because of this division of knowledge and understanding, a lot of things get dropped and people are, uh, you know, wrong things can happen, corruption can happen, people can get harmed, children can get harmed. Simple as that. So the, if you are not in the table, you will be in the menu, guaranteed. <laughs> there is no good. ifs and buts about it. Yeah. So just like we say, nobody should be above the law. Lack of knowledge of the law is not an excuse. True. Mm. It's same thing with parenting. Parenting is a full-time job, folks. Yeah. It's 24-7 plus more and more. It requires proper. So when you elect a school board director, we work for you. So as a school board director, it becomes my fiduciary ethical duty to ask these hard questions on behalf of you. Yes. That's like such a beautiful parallel to leadership in every way you have this responsibility to be forecasting and looking ahead and having usually more information. You have all these decisions to make and you're making it on behalf of, of these people. And it's the same thing. And you think of a manager has to do a lot more things, um, different things and a lot more things forecasting for their employees in the same way that teachers do for their students as parents do for their kids. And it's, I think that's that's leadership. Yeah. Well, more than leadership, that is the core essential function of the school board director. Sure. I am prepared to face any kind of humiliation, pushback, name calling, etc., so that our children don't have to go through. Mm. Yeah. You know, you need to, these are very important, what we call crucial conversation, where we have different perspectives, opposing perspective, but the stakes are high, the high emotion. I have learned during times like this, you, I will go towards the problem. I will not walk away from the problem. Sure. And I will never forsake anybody, any section. And really going with that mindset, some people are going to be so angry that they want to say all kinds of negative things about sure. it. Some are scared and hiding and crying. I have to constantly remember, and I used to remind my board when I was a chair, that both are suffering. You cannot lose compassion just because somebody wants to bite your head off. Yep. <laughs> as much as the other person who is hiding and crying and scared about mm. what's going on. You have to practice. And that's how I worked hard, made sure nobody resigned or quit my board when I was a chair during the height of all the perfect storm. Sure. And I really think that was the biggest blessing we offered because we, in the process we had to pass a budget during the extraordinary time. 
so that 20,000 kids could be fed, 5,000 staff could be paid, we could run the school and operation. Then we had to face the wildfire and the ice storm and the and social on, unrest. And on and on, right? <laughs> so, oh, well, hey, uh, I, I know that we're we're out of time. I wish, I wish we had more. It flies by so quickly. For that person that's out there that's listening, uh, you're like, well, I can't do what, what he's doing. Well, then, you know, man a post, uh, learn a little bit, uh, and uh, listen and get involved to the extent you can. Our community needs every facet of that. If people wanted to get in touch with you, uh, what would be the way to do that? So I have put, I have filed for re-election. I just opened the full disclosure. I want to let you all know. So my website is www.satyaforschools.com. S-A-T-Y-A-F-O-R schools.com. My you know, that is one way. If you go into that, it has got my cell phone number, my email address. I am fully transparent. Anybody can approach me. Sure. You know? Okay. So I have practiced that right from get-go. I will answer your call. If I can't, even if you ask me a question that only makes sense to you, I will still invite you for a cup of coffee and listen. I may not have the answer, but I'll at least share with you honestly my perspective. Mm. Together we can and we must. There is no other plan B. There is no other agenda. Yeah. Our kids have no. Ch- we have to work. All, all of us push the car in the same direction. So thank you very much. I really appreciate this opportunity to share. Yeah, yeah thank you so much, Satya, for coming. And um, for those who are listening, you can listen to our episodes air every Saturday at 11 a.m. on KSLM, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Leading Well by Valor Mentoring. <laughs>